Okay, here we are, June the 22nd, 2014, lecture uh, number 159. And yes, that is correct. I thank for you folks on the Internet. I was feeling poorly on June the 8th. Uh, I was uh, under the weather and gutted it out, and I renumbered uh, June the 8th the same as June the 1st. I think they were all both 157. So I have two 157s for those of you who notice these things, and I considered calling today's lecture number 157 also, and I thought I might keep doing that until I was caught, get to maybe five or six 157s. And I really initially liked my idea a lot, but I have relented, conceded to maturity, though it should be noted uh, that uh, that was not an easy battle. It was not without contestation. Anyway, I want to say this really fast because of very good friend of this church, uh, an honorable man of God, a, a man uh, that I think lived a well-lived life, Jack Minnery, Jack Minnery, I should say it clearly, he has passed away this morning, I got the call, um, a pastor to the homeless here in Anchorage, and very good uh, theological mind and doctrinally sound man, and when you lose Jack Minnery's, uh, that's always hurt. That hurts a lot, and I know he's doing great. He had not a shred of doubt and lived a, a fantastic representation, a kind man. I don't think I ever heard him say an unkind word about anyone, and so we'll miss him until uh, uh, we get to see him. He is by far a better theologian than all of us now, and uh, we wish him well. We don't have to wish him well. We hope his family is uh, able to, to to be okay. Okay, last Sunday, June the 15th, uh, uh, we elected to air on the side of public safety and canceled. You can hear things if you're on the Internet flying overhead and going by on the road because the roof framing has been removed in uh, at least three bays now of this building. Um and so uh, there is no roof structure, and we thought, or I thought that the uh, the facility was compromised, and, and because there's no viable uh, shear structure at all up there. So 30 years of uh, water infiltration and condensation combining has rendered the wood joists and the beams, and those beams are oh at least 36 inches, nine and an eighth by 36s. They're glue lambs up there, and they're completely black mush in at least half of the beam. So they're uh, seriously in jeopardy. There's therefore no plywood shear membrane and no joists and no rafters, just a beautiful cliffside community chapel and the vapor barrier keeping us from the elements. And so as a highly trained construction professional, I thought we'd wait a week and um, uh, hoping that the building would become somewhat uh, more uh, dependable. And right now, the, what the building is depending on the scaffolding for its structural integrity, I'm afraid. So there was no June 15th lecture, number 157. That's a joke. I'm kidding. I don't know what number it was supposed to be. But there is no June 15th lecture. And, uh, uh, and that's uh, what had happened. Anyway, in case you Internet folks are wondering, um, yes, we are uh, indeed uh, risking our lives to provide you with today's sermon. Uh, number 157. Uh, what is it? It is really 159. That's enough of that joke. At any moment, though, a bird 
uh, might choose to land on the visqueen and collapse the building. So we're at the mercy of the weather and the animal kingdom, and, uh, and uh, I hope you appreciate us today. I need to say that future lectures may be at risk. If this gets worse, they're moving very slowly, and I don't blame them. It's a 9-12 pitch. It's about 60-foot run. Um, if you fall off, you hit the highway. So they're going slow. They have to pull three feet of urethane out of there, about two and a half feet, replace all the uh, structure, and uh, it's taken them a long time. So they could, uh, if we have bad, really bad weather, uh, it might shut us down again. So be ready for that, those of you out there who are listening. And uh, this is our lot in life, uh, being that we are parasitically attached to the uh, owners of the facility. And I just wanted our uh, uh, the vast Internet audience to feel sorry for us. That's my plan today, <laughs> to have compassion. Uh, yeah, like, like that's going to happen. But it's still, nonetheless, a nice little segue to the Internet folks, of which I have a couple of letters that I find, I think that you'll find interesting. First one uh, up today is from David in Nebraska. Dear Pastor Chronister, since hearing your boasts about the fine job you do of providing your parishioners with their much-needed rest on Sundays, I've experimented with replacing my other sleeping aids with your lectures. The results have been astonishing. Each lecture averages three nights of restful sleep before I heard, it, heard the entirety of it. This disproves the college urban legend of subconscious learning by listening to a professor's lectures while sleeping. The result of this experiment leads to the need of a warning label, I suspect, or I offer, I'm sorry. Remembering your fondness uh, for printed t-shirts, I suggest every person that downloads a lecture receive a t-shirt that bears this message on the front. Warning, do not drive or operate heavy machinery while under the influence of a cliffside lecture. Sleepiness and serious confusion may result. Both may be relieved temporarily with continuing doses of cliffside lectures. The back of the shirt could be printed with the fine print. Side effects of cliffside lectures include poor physical health and strange mutterings as a result of forced researching of advanced physics and archaic biblical studies. However, the spiritual growth experience will, be great, will greatly exceed the claims made in the TV ads. For the TV ads, I thought we could get Chuck Norris to do something. <laughs> Similar to the many weight loss ads. Just a little something from a fat man getting older in Nebraska. In Christ's love, David. Now, David, uh, that was, uh, we appreciate uh, David. He has written me in the past, and he has always uh, been either delightful like that or very intuitive. So, now I have a second, Sharon from Texas, and we all... Uh, remember Sharon. We used to boo Sharon, but she hasn't written much. But she sent this along, and it's headed. The heading is, and you should come and read it. I don't have a chance to read all of it today for, because of time. A world-famous chemist tells the truth. How many of you saw this? Have you? No? A world-famous chemist tells the truth. There is no scientist alive today who understands evolutionary theory. Certainly not macroevolution. And so she, uh, here, here's what it says. Professor James M. Tour is one of the ten most cited chemists in the world. He is famous for his work on nanocars, nanoelectronics, graphene nanostructures. As you know, Bill 
the fast um, is interested in graphene nanostructures, and he brings it up uh, occasionally for those of you who care. Uh, carbon nanovectors in medicine and green carbon research for enhanced oil recovery and environmentally friendly oil and gas extraction. He is currently a professor of chemistry, professor of computer science, and professor of mechanical engineering and material science at Rice University. He has authored or co-authored 489 scientific publications, and his name is on 36 patents. Although he does not regard himself as an intelligent design theorist, Professor Tour, along with 700 other scientists, took the courageous step back in 2001 of signing the Discovery Institute's uh, A Scientific Descent from Darwinism, which read, We are skeptical of claims for the ability of random mutation and natural selection to account for the complexity of life. Careful examination of the evidence for Darwinian theory should be encouraged. Now I'm going to read a few quotes from Mr. Professor Tour. This is what he says. I simply do not understand chemically how macroevolution could have happened. Hence, am I not free to join the ranks of the skeptical and to sign such a statement without reprisals from those who disagree with me? Does anyone understand the chemical details behind macroevolution? If so, I would like to sit with that person and be taught. So I invite them to meet with me. I will tell you as a scientist and a synthetic chemist, if anyone should be able to understand evolution, it is me, because I make molecules for a living, and I just don't buy a kit and mix this and mix that and mix this and get that. I mean ab initio, which is from the beginning. From the beginning, I make molecules. I understand how hard it is to make molecules. I understand that if I take nature's toolkit, it would be, it could be much easier because all the tools are already there. And I just mix it in the proportions and I do it under these conditions. But from the beginning, it is very, very, very hard to make molecules. I don't understand evolution, he says. And I will confess that to you. Is that okay for me to say I don't understand evolution? Is that all right? I know there are a lot of people out there that don't understand anything about organic synthesis, but they understand evolution. I understand a lot about making molecules. I don't understand evolution. And you would say that, wow, I must be really unusual. Let me tell you what goes on in the back rooms of science with National Academy members, with Nobel Prize winners. I have sat with them, and when I get them alone, not in public, because it's a scary thing. If you say what I just said, I say, do you understand all of this, where all of this came from, and how this happens? Every time I have sat with people who are synthetic chemists, who, who understand this issue, they go, no. These people are just so far off on how to believe this, this stuff came together. I've sat with National Academy members, Nobel Prize winners. Sometimes I will say, do you understand this? And if they are afraid to say yes, they say nothing. They just stare at me because they don't understand it and can't sincerely say it. That is the scientific community. It's absolutely right. That's what's going on. They know that evolutionary philosophy is indefensible. And slowly but surely, I made a comment last week when I had a few cogent and lucid moments, 
that uh, changes are happening really, really fast now. Christopher and I were talking about um, the scientific community somewhere had decided that there was no free will. And they really want that to be the truth. They want us to have a purposeless, hopeless uh, understanding, if you will, or, or condition. See, if you think there is no free will, then uh, it is a lot easier to, compa- to uh, annihilate people. Genocide is, the foundation of genocide is to ascribe meaningless life, meaningless existence, no free will to great masses of people. It's been that way for histories, or for hundreds of years in history. But the other problem is, is uh, free will can't be accounted for by evolutionary thought processes. Where did free will come from? So that's why the argument is so important. That's why I have so much trouble with the hyper-Calvinists, and um, that's why they don't like me very much. Well, no, no, I shouldn't say that. Lots of people don't like me very much. But I am not surprised to see the free will discussion. You should expect it. The free will discussion to start to rise up as the chemistry and the physics and the biology and the mathematics and the information theory and the cosmology begins slowly to destroy evolutionary philosophy. So expect that. That's what's happening. Also expect uh, Russia and Persia. Notice what Syria is, I'm sorry, what Iran is doing. That's Persia. What, notice what uh, Iran is doing. Iran is going to come in now and help uh, the, the government of Iraq, which they have installed. That is an Irani uh, subject government. And they're going to help uh, al-Maliki survive. They're going to fight this um, um, Sunni-based Islamic threat, al-Qaeda Islamic threat, that is also part of the Syrian rebellion. And Syria, Assad, is a Iranian subject government as well as is Hezbollah. So you could see if Persia, if, if Iran begins to seize control of Baghdad, which is where? Where is it? That's the seat of Nebuchadnezzar's uh, kingdom, Babylon, right? As, as Israel, sorry, Iran begins to seize control uh, of Babylon, Iraq, and moves in and gets a stronger foothold in Syria, and moves in and goes in further and more aggressively toward where the Hezbollah is in Lebanon, then you see Persia or Iran becoming this amazing threat uh, to Israel. And, and Russia simultaneously is taking the Crimean, has taken the Crimean Peninsula and is moving towards taking half of the Ukrainian uh, established country. And while that is happening, how's, uh, how's your grocery prices going? Uh, inflationary, but because of the quantitative easing or quantitative easing, whichever way you wish to pronounce it, um, with the monetizing of the debt, uh, you're seeing tremendous upward inflationary pressure now on staples. One of the things they're doing, as you know, is they're shrinking the size of the portion. So instead of buying a five-pound bag of sugar for whatever it costs, I don't know, you're not getting a four-pound bag of sugar for the same cost, right? Same thing's happening with everything that way. They're shrinking the packaging on, on, uh, on the staples. Now, gasoline is, uh, if Baghdad falls um, to the Al-Qaeda insurgency there, 
look for gasoline to explode. And, and understand, there are people in our government who want gasoline to be very expensive because that pushes the weak into cities. And if the weak are in cities, it is very easy to control them. And that is a, it's a control versus a freedom-based issue. It is some wish to be controlled and some wish to control. And uh, some, however, wish not to control nor be controlled. And so those are the two sides. I don't want to control you and I don't want you to control me. That makes me difficult for these um, governmental, centralized governmental authority people. So they don't like me either. I can make a big long list of people that don't like me. That doesn't take me very long. Okay, enough of that. That was uh, just for fun. Where are we? We're somewhere in Genesis, Exodus, and Joshua. We're comparing the three meetings of Jesus Christ when he is the angel of the Lord in that manifestation, and he comes to Jacob, Moses, and Joshua. He comes to wrestle with Jacob. He comes to put himself in front of Moses to kill Moses. We'll get to that in a few weeks. And he comes here to Joshua to put himself opposite of Joshua. And we made this list if, uh, last week or a few weeks ago. Whatever it was, I think it was lecture 157. Okay, I don't know. But we did that. So let's recap all of that because it's been a couple of weeks. Wow, the noise stopped. Oh, there it goes again. Traffic is going again. So <clears throat> let's kind of set up this again. And I don't remember uh, how much I covered because I never listened to myself. That way I, I don't lose uh, my morale. The second generation of, of Israel obeys this time, and they are circumcised. That is Joshua 5, 1 through 12. And the second generation then keeps the Passover. They eat the unleavened bread and then uh, the produce of the promised land. Okay, That's the context of where we're at. That's how we start. Next, the manna ceases, and then... Uh, then Jesus Christ, God himself, the commander of the Lord, of the army of the Lord, with his sword drawn, stands opposite of Joshua. Okay, that's hopefully um, resets you. And that's this behold uh, number C. That's pretty much where we are today. Behold, a man stood opposite Joshua with his sword drawn in his hand. And I can't, i got to scream out the word behold. Behold! So what follows that, a man stood opposite Joshua with his sword drawn in his hand. That's great, incredible truth. That's what behold does. It tells you there's something that is unbelievable in those words right there. That's the purpose, again, of the behold. That's the, what it's telling us. That's the case, if you will. And I have to stop saying, if you will. i got to know. Please stop saying, if you will. You always say, if you will. The whole sermon sounds like one great big long, if you will. And I want to thank the person that sent that to me. And I promise I will not say, if you will, anymore. <laughs> uh, it's hard for me to even start now, because what do I want to say? I want to say, I'm fighting, I'm fighting myself. <laughs> What is the fantastic truth in that sentence? Let me repeat it. A man stood opposite of Joshua. I'm adding Joshua, putting his name in there. A man stood opposite Joshua with his sword drawn in his hand. 
So he has it in one hand. He has a sword. He's standing opposite of Joshua, and he's a man. That is a behold. Now, you should know immediately what the behold, the, the first part of the behold is. All of that is a behold. All of that's extraordinary information. But if you had to pick one word in that sentence that is the greatest behold that you could pick, which would you pick? What word? Man. Because no one knew that God was going to come as a man. The God-man. That's one of the fantastic truths. But there is more there, obviously. And we can and we must conclude that uh, this act by Christ coming in this as a man, standing opposite with his sword drawn in his hand, we must conclude that this is the result of what has occurred immediately before. So we've got to pay attention to the order. And it's probably a good idea to read that. That's what we'll do really fast. I'm going to go really fast today because I know it's hard to even hear in here. It must be really bad on the Internet feed. I say that like I know there is an internet feed. But it, uh, so here we go. Let's go to uh, Joshua 5, 1 through 12. Here is the immediacy, or what's immediately prefacing the behold, a man comes. A man stood opposite. So it was when all the kings of the Amorites were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites were by the sea, they heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan River before the children of Israel until the, we had crossed over, and that their hearts melted. In other words, the kings of the promised land that were being invaded were absolutely destroyed emotionally by the crossing um, of the Jordan River. And at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. Notice what I'm doing to you. Right? All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all of the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons whom he raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the Bible does that, what's it trying to tell you? So it was when the people circumcising all of the, so it was when they had finished circumcising all the people that they stayed in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, this day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal to this day. Now the children of Israel camped 
in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight on the plains of Jericho. And they ate of the produce of the land, and on the day after the Passover unleavened bread and parched grain on that very same day, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate uh, the food of the land of Canaan that year. Okay, so there again, that is what is before this great behold, a man stood opposite with his sword drawn in his hand. Obviously, uh, that we have to understand that connecting of those of that first twelve verses with verse thirteen. Now the kings were melted. They had witnessed the crossing of the Jordan River. And that was a real bad problem for them. Why? Because they're watching them come up against the river. And what are they? They know this is a threat. They know that the, the Israelites are coming to kill them. Everyone knows. They have spies. They have systems. They all know. But their hearts melted when they saw them go across the Jordan River. Because what, what was the military tactic? We'll wait for them to do what? Start crossing that river. And then what are we going to do? We're going to start picking them off. Now, what's your tactic? Do you let some of them get across? Because if you let them get across and slaughter them because they can't retreat, they have no fortifications. They're coming across the river. How many places are they going to try to cross? We just got to spread our forces, let them come across, wipe them out. How many do you let come across? You know, so all of that military, uh, to repeat the word tactics, is going on. You have to consider that. They're going to wait till some cross. Are they going to get them while they cross? How many are they going to allow to cross? There is, in this kind of war, there is an ebb and flow to it uh, from the morale standpoint. Uh, if I'm If I'm crossing that river knowing that I'm just going to be slaughtered on the other side, that's a, an issue. It's hard to ma- maintain that kind of troop movement when that is occurring. So, so the, here's the kings. And then all of a sudden, Israel gets across supernaturally very fast. Boom! Across. Waters heap up. Joshua 3.16. Very much like the Red Sea. Israel is across. And, the, and now the kings are in hopeless despair. This massive army has come across, and it obviously has a supernatural advantage. This isn't good news for them. Can't trap them against the river. And now at that exact time that that happens, God tells Joshua to completely circumcise, circumcise, circumcise. Keep repeating the word till you understand how important that word is, this, this, this symbol is to this passage. Joshua, God tells Joshua, now is the time, after you've got across the Jordan River, what are we going to do? We're up against the river, so I'm going to have you circumcised. What's that going to do to that army? Thanks, Shechem. It's going to incapacitate that army, those younger than 40. And again, I did my best to emphasize circumcision. Those are, those are some of the highly most sought after, after lecture on the, on the internet is the circumcision lectures. Everybody loves those. That, of course, is not true at all. We've had, Dave had to come up with all kinds of different, uh, uh, sermon titles on 
sermon audio in order to get people to listen to any of them. We're very, uh, we're nothing if not resourceful. Anyway, obviously this chapter, 5 through 1, 1 through 13, Joshua 5, 1 through 13, it's marinated in circumcision, the symbolism that is circumcision. So you have to understand what this symbol means. It's a covenant sign. But just as, by the way, the same for Moses. I hope you recognize immediately Exodus 4, 18 through 26, which we're going to put the circumcision that occurs there next to the circumcision that occurs here. And we'll get to that soon. And by soon, I mean Christmas. Anyway, ask, what is the reason that the second generation was circumcised at this time? And note also that the first generation of Israel tells you very clearly. The first generation of Israel did not circumcise their children in the wilderness. The ones coming out of Egypt were circumcised, but the ones born in the 40 years were not circumcised. That's what it says. That's the second. That's why he does it a second time. He has the ones that were not circumcised. So those sons who were born in the wilderness were not circumcised by the first generation. Ask why not? Again, those who came out of Egypt circumcised. Those born in the wilderness not circumcised. Why? Now, pay attention to Moses on his way to Egypt. I know it seems like I'm on a little rabbit trail here. I'm not. I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. As I see it. Isn't it interesting that Moses on his way to Egypt is confronted by God? Jesus Christ. The angel will have old. And why did Christ stand opposite to Moses? Because Moses had not. He's going to seek to kill Moses. Exodus 4.24. Moses did not circumcise his son. Identical to the first generation that is in the wilderness. And so I want to know, was the reason the same now? What I mean by that was Joshua met by Christ for the same reason that Moses was met by Christ, and, and is circumcision the issue in both cases? And, and clearly circumcision pro- provides us the answer in both cases. And, and what does this have to do with Jacob's limp? Because I have to put Jacob... Moses and Joshua together at some point. You can talk amongst yourselves and mull that over while I move along. What, from last week, what an odd answer to Joshua's question. Joshua asks a question and he gets what seems to be an odd answer. But it can't be an odd answer because it's God who is answering it. So therefore, it must be a perfect answer. So let's now read this again. And it came to pass, verse 13, Joshua 5. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or our adversaries? No. And he said, no, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped him and said to him, ask this question, what does my Lord say to his servant? Take off your shoes. Doesn't that, I hope that that strikes you as 
kind of unusual. It is a perfect answer. But let's uh, let's go back to this no, as I pounded on that last time we were together. Number H. No. Are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? No. If God is not for Israel and not for the adversaries of Israel, then whose side is he on? You have to answer that. Now, couple that with Joshua's question. Um, the What do you want me to do? Take your shoes off. And by the way, Moses got the same thing, didn't he? Moses was told, take your shoes off. So what is the meaning of take your shoes off and why does it fit here? Moses is at Exodus 3, 1 through 5, told to remove his sandals or his shoes. Obviously, we can discern the meaning of the removing of the sandals by comparing Moses with Joshua, something that we will do soon. But for today, I hope your first response when reading Joshua 5, 14 through 15 was, uh, was one of, huh, huh? How is taking off the shoes a proper response to what does my Lord God say to his servant? And I say this as much as I can. Don't just read the text. Start teaching yourself to ask and determine the cause and effect. The Bible has a cause and effect method to it. Why did Christ come at this exact moment? What made him come at this exact moment? He comes when Joshua is at Jericho. Why does he come there? Or is it another reason? For example, did he come because the manna ceased? See, right before he comes, I have manna ceasing, right? And they ate of the food. And they'd just taken the, the, the unleavened bread on, and kept the Passover. And then Joshua is at Jericho. But it seems to be as it came to pass when Joshua is at Jericho. So it seems to be that that is more specific or more cause, if you will, to the effect of Christ's coming. So Joshua is by Jericho. That makes Christ come. Why? Well, try to think it through. Why is Joshua at Jericho? What's he doing there? Is he by himself? Is he alone like Jacob? Some people think that. Let me give you a couple other positions. Had Joshua ever been to Jericho before? Yes, he had. Joshua had been at Jericho before, as you know. Deuteronomy chapter 1, 40 years ago. God had commanded the first generation to possess the land. Deuteronomy 1.8. What did the first generation do? Not going to go. They refused. They A direct order from God, Deuteronomy 1.8, to take the land. And they refused a direct order from who? The commander of the army of the Lord. Not just the earthly army, but the heavenly army. They refused a direct command from God himself. 
and they refused to move. Was there any exceptions to that? Yes. Joshua. Caleb. They would obey. They would believe God would do something. So they would go. And God said to them, to Israel, that he would go first. He would carry Israel. He said, listen, go. I will go in front of you. I will carry you. I will fight for you. You, But they still refused. Won't go. And now here's Joshua again at Jericho. Now why? Why wouldn't they go? Do you remember? You all took Sunday school. You all got Skittles for getting the right answer. Do you remember why they wouldn't go? They wouldn't go. And let me read it. 128 Deuteronomy. They wouldn't go because of the report of the spies, of which Joshua and Caleb were two of the spies. Here's what the spy report said. The spy report said, yes, this is fantastic land. But here's what else it said. The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Four reasons. We're not moving. We're not taken because we're outnumbered. We're smaller and weaker than those guys. They have walled cities with massive tall walls. And the Anakim are there. Who are the Anakim? It is important to note uh, that uh, uh, Joshua, let me repeat it, that Joshua, that I think that's the key to it, as a matter of fact. He had seen these walls before. And those are huge walls. And not only had he seen them before, but his entire army had heard about them because these walls were pretty special. These are the walls that are great walls um, fortified up to the heavens. So these aren't six-foot walls. These are huge walls up to the heavens. If you were going to describe a wall as up to the heavens, how big would you say it is? If you were going to describe a building up to the heavens, how big would you say the building is? Would you say the building's what? Twenty feet tall? How, how tall does it have to be to be up to the heavens? We would think that it would have to be at least a hundred feet or better, maybe at least fifty feet. They have to be huge walls to have this description. And now Joshua, as the general of the Israeli army of circumcised men, was about to do what? He's going to attack. He's about to send his forces against the huge walls of Jericho. And what's he got? What's he got? He's got no siege equipment. He's got no catapults. He's got no movable towers. He's got no ramming devices. What's he got? He's got tiny men, recently circumcised, with spears and slingshots. Maybe he's got a few bows and arrows. Most of it, he's got little tiny guys, and we're going. Maybe some archers going against these massive fortifications. And I'm going to submit that at minimum, they're 50 feet high. And in order, um, being the trained professional that I am, if it's going to stand 50 feet high, how thick does it have to be? What's it made out of? How is it supported? What kind of technology, what kind of human being can make a wall that size that go reaches up to the heaven? And he's about to go at it. Uh, with these little men that he has, 
It's so I got again 50 foot fortifications, uh, an opponent who is physically uh, much superior, and on the surface you can imagine how the army's doing. Now we've just all been recently circumcised. Now we're going to go after a 50 foot walls or better that are probably at least at least to get that kind of height, 10 feet thick. And, and all kinds of capabilities, walkways, etc. On the surface, this would appear to be ridiculous, or hopeless, or maybe even stupid. So what is Joshua thinking? If his assault fails, can he retreat? No. Because he's got a river behind him. Where's his women and children? Down by the river. What's going to happen if he has to retreat? going to be totally wiped out. So, what is Joshua going to do? Joshua, and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho. What's he going to do? He's going to attack. He's not going to make the same mistake made in Deuteronomy 1. He's an obedient man, man of God, I believe. I think that's the only thing that works. And though Joshua is obedient, I suspect he sees no avenue of success. But he's going to do what God says and trust. Maybe we get a Red Sea repeat. We attack, we get repelled, we retreat, we run back to the Jordan River, it heaps up again, we get across. They go after us, they get a bath drowned in the river. Maybe that's what happens. The river isn't that wide, though. Won't drown that many, even on an overflow season. So I'm submitting that Joshua, nonetheless, is on the cusp of attacking, and Christ comes at that exact moment. I want you to think a little bit like Thomas at John 11:16. Then Thomas said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with Christ. I think that Joshua is in a similar situation. But before Joshua can begin to send his forces, think Abraham and Isaac, before he can attack, what happens here? Abraham and Isaac on the mountain. Gotcha. Thank you. But before Joshua can begin to send his forces, Jesus Christ comes and stops him, stands opposite. I think Joshua's going first. Josiah. And Christ comes and stops up, stands opposite, stands in his way. Israel, Joshua, cannot pass. And by the way, that's the same as Moses. Moses can't get by Christ in Exodus 4, 24 through 26 until Moses' sons are circumcised. These sons with Joshua are circumcised. That's been remedied. But Christ still won't let them pass. He won't let them attack. Again, notice that Joshua, I believe, intends to go first. And Christ refuses to let him. So, now the answer to the question starts to make sense, doesn't it? Yeah, the question is, Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? No. Let me put it in shorthand. No. I am God. Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for Israel or are you for Jericho? No. I am God. That's how he answers that. 
And Joshua does what? What's it say? He falls on his face and he worships. Joshua knows this is God. But obviously he didn't know it was God when he saw him. He goes up to him and he says, are you for Israel or are you for Jericho? No, I am God. And Joshua knew immediately that he was God right there. How did he know? Man with a sword. How did he know it's God? Didn't know by seeing. What did he know? He knew by hearing. What did he hear? God spoke. As soon as God spoke, what did Joshua know? Recognized the voice, didn't he? I know that voice. You're God. Fell on his face and worshipped. But again, he didn't know at first. I think that's obvious from the text. He recognized his voice. God had spoken to Joshua before. Duh. Are you for Israel or are you for Jericho? No, I am God. I am for me, God is saying. I am not for Israel. I am not for Jericho. I am for me. What, what does that mean? He's not going to fight on the side of Jericho. He's not even going to fight for Israel in the sense where he joins in the, with the army and rushes with them. He is going to fight by himself. I am for me. I will do all the fighting. God has come at this point to do what he always intends, what he did at the Red Sea, what he'll do at Revelation 19. Our job mostly is to be still and watch. Some people prefer shut up and watch. God comes at the time when we are unable to prevail. And we don't do anything. That, by the way, is our physical death. He comes at that time. Now, notice Joshua's, as, as Jack knows. Ask Jack. Notice Joshua's perfect question. What do you want me to do? And God's answer, take off your shoes. That's what I want you to do. So what do you think take off your shoes means? I want you to take off your shoes. You can't do anything until you first take off your shoes. So start to think about what take off your shoes must mean and then go back to Moses at the burning bush where he takes off his shoes and figure out how they fit together. You're saying to God, God is in front of you and you hear him say, I'm going to fight. This is my fight. I'm going to do the fighting. And you go, what can I do? Take off your shoes. What does that mean? And then the holy ground. This place is holy ground. Why this place? What happened on this place? And obviously, we got a lot to figure out. I'm out of time. That's something that everyone likes to hear me say. God is going to use trumpets. I think that's what makes this the most fantastic passage in all of the Bible. He understands resonance. He's going to flatten the 50-foot high walls, and they could be twice that size. He's going to flatten those walls uh, with trumpet resonance. And, and we have to know a couple of things, because i got 50-foot high walls, and he's going to flatten them. It says he knocked them down flat. Whap. Which way did they fall? They fall in, 
they fall out. If they fall in, how's that going to work for Jericho? If you're in Jericho and somebody says, I'm about to flatten the big walls here, which way would you like them to fall? Yeah, they're all voting for out. Which way do you think they fell? We have to know which way the walls fell. We also need to know, Joshua 6.10, that Joshua says, I'm sorry, we also need to know in Joshua 6.10, Joshua tells the people, you shall not shout or make any noise with your voice, nor shall a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I say to you, shout. In other words, shut up. Don't make a noise. Don't do anything until I tell you when to shout. Don't do nothing. We have to know what about that. We have to know why the time, what time do you think was the time they're supposed to shout? And we also need to know what else. What? What they say. Don't you want to know what they say? Is it a word? I think it was a word. Or at least a sentence. They all had their little piece of paper. I think some were sopranos, some were altos, some were tenors. They all stood there and they waited until they were told to shout, and they all shouted. Did they have any effect on the walls? What is the accursed thing? Because God says, by all means, abstain from the accursed thing. Actually, the word means is cherim. It means devoted thing. There is a devoted thing in there. Stay away from it. You're going to see that in the next city as well. And why was it that all of Jericho was killed, even the animals, except for Rahab and her, uh, she was the exception. All that the Rahab had uh, was saved, but the animals were killed at Jericho. So what does that make you wonder? What was going on inside this city? I want to know, how is it that they built these big walls? What was going on in that city? God killed everything in it. He does that when? When everything is what? Contaminated. What were they doing in there? So we got a lot to figure out so that we can connect uh, to Moses and Jacob and then to Pharaoh and then to Romans chapter 9 so that we can understand correctly the potter and the clay. That's what we're doing. And that's where we're stopping for today. We'll see you sometime later. Soon, we'll figure out when that is. Everybody will get a call if the building fell down. Notice how we're doing this. Jericho falls down. Our building falls down. That can't be a coincidence. Somebody planned this lecture very carefully. Let the musicians come forward. Let's rise and be dismissed.